Hi, welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Mission Commander Aviv Rubenstein. Or am I? <laughs> There's a new Mission Impossible out in the world, if you haven't heard. In Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Ethan Hunt, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, and the IMF team must track down a terrifying new weapon that threatens all of humanity if it should fall into the wrong hands. With the control of the future and fate of the world at stake, a deadly race around the globe begins. Confronted by a mysterious, all-powerful enemy, Ethan is forced to consider that nothing can matter more than the mission, not even the lives of those he cares about most. Anyway, there are a lot of Mission Impossible films out there, and I've only seen a few of them. But Aviv and I did want to take this opportunity to talk about a sub-saga within the greater MI universe. This is the story of Mission Impossible 2, the leaking of Metallica's I Disappear, which the metal band wrote for the film soundtrack in 2000, and how Metallica went to war with the then very new file-sharing platform, Napster. To help us achieve this mission, we called upon an expert, culture writer from Toronto, Nico Stratus. All this and more on the latest episode of InSync. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nico, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to InSync. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're both very big fans of your work and your writing. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into everything Mission Impossible and Metallica related? Yeah, uh, I'm six foot two. Uh, when I was 13, I applied for a job at McDonald's and they said I'm not what they're looking for. And then that was in 1995. And then ever since then, it's really been kind of nothing until the last couple of years when I became a writer. Uh, I'm a I'm a culture writer on the internet. And that's it. That's my whole life story. And like a very, that's like really all the bullet points. I really want to dive into this McDonald's thing. <laughs> it's like my favorite fact. Very curious about that. I got told I'm not what they're looking for, which if you want a phrase to haunt you forever, it's the McDonald's right. corporation tell you, not you. 
have you heard have you heard of the podcast dead eyes i have and i think about dead eyes this like, is your dead every, eyes I, moment yeah believe me when i tell you that i am literally i have a sketch in like a, i have like a so like to, for the non-jokey version of my life i'm a, I'm a writer I'm, I'm writing a couple of books i'm a culture writer and uh i have a this book that i keep on my desk that is just of like pitches and like ideas and one of my ideas is like an overarching long form podcast idea about McDonald's. I'm 41 years old. I really need to reiterate as I'm like jokingly talking about McDonald's. I'm also like a full on adult and I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with McDonald's. We started this show because we're also like obsessed with things that we probably should have left behind as teenagers. (laughs) Not the least of which for me is the Mission Impossible film. Sure. It is not known for its needle drops. It's not like a like a pop music heavy film series. Other than the iconic theme, which was composed by Lalo Schifrin, you'd probably be hard pressed to name any other song in the entire franchise. There's a needle drop in Mission Impossible 3 of We Are Family, which is kind of fun. Um, eh, that's boring. <laughs> let alone in Mission Impossible 2, which is the least loved installment of the franchise. Truly. In fact, the Metallica song that we're talking about today doesn't even appear in the film. I didn't even know that, Aviv. Well, because I had never watched Mission Impossible 2 until like three days ago. Hell yeah. And I didn't I was realize. hoping that you wouldn't figure it out for a while. <laughs> I was like, when does this song even show up? Doesn't. And then I started Googling it and was like, wait, it plays over the credits. Oh, they did the <laughs> Spider-Man thing. They did yeah. the Spider-Man thing. Yeah. And so it, it appears in the credits after the Lalo Schifrin theme plays, which is like a kind of a new metal cover, I think done by Limp Biscuit. It is. It is Limp Bizkit. Oh, boy. So <laughs> why then are we dedicating our time and yours to talking about a lesser known Metallica song, I Disappear? Well, it might be because it's the most important song of the internet age. It's less about the movie and and song and more about what the song represents, which we know that Nico knows a lot about in its in terms of its history, which is why we wanted to have her on. And but first, I I did want to ask Nico, what is your connection either to Metallica or the Mission Impossible verse, or is there a connection? I mean, I I would say I I have a connection there for sure. I grew up the only person like my family are largely not music people in the way that I was, but my cousin's a big metal guy. Uh, and he, my cousin was a big Megadeth fan when I was younger. So he oh, would yeah. sort of like tell me about this like split between Megadeth and Metallica. And I'm like 13 years old. And here's my cousin who's covered in tattoos from head to foot. Who's like, no, you have to like Megadeth because they're cooler and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I was like a young Megadeth fan. Like imagine being 13 years old and you're like, no, Megadeth is my band, uh, which is sort of where I was at. But I also loved, I loved, and I still do the Mission Impossible series. I think it's funny because when you describe the plot to the newest Mission Impossible, it's literally the plot to every Mission Impossible. It's always... Yes. He always has to do like, it's always a race against time around the world. And doesn't he want like just to like a race against time, like just around the neighborhood, like just to stay home? (laughs) Is this not an excuse for Tom Cruise just to visit every country? (laughs) Not to to get ahead of ourselves, but I think that there's something to that. And a a little preview of the kind of second half of the episode. I don't want to say it's on purpose, right? But I think the idea was not to change the story every Mission Impossible, but to do the same exact story in different styles. Yeah. Give him a different really tall building to run down the side of. And a different different auteur director in a different cinematic style to 
fit a Mission Impossible type story in. Because we went from J- Brian De Palma to John Woo to J.J. Abrams to Brad Bird, who is an animation guy. It's all, it's all, it's all coming together. I've got like the red string <laughs> on my corkboard. Yeah, you're you're Charlie, and it's always sunny. But like, oh yeah, it's funny that Mission Impossible Two is the one that people don't like because it's the John Woo one. Like, if anybody, if any auteur was like well prepared to take that franchise, it's him, right? Like he I was, the, especially in two thousand, like he was kind of the guy. You have a you have a guy. He's going to hold two guns. Some doves There's are going to fly up. Motion doves. Yes, and like I, you're gonna get I all the hits. <laughs> I thought the fight sequences, especially the last one, was pretty awesome. But I, I have to make an, a confession to you both that when I f- saw the first Mission Impossible movie, I thought it was boring. And you were not alone. I, I saw the second one three days ago, and I thought that one was boring too. It gets better as it gets and older. I'm like, it does, yeah, get better. yeah, which is very unusual and for uh, Mission yeah. Two is the gayest by far <laughs> of the oh, series. Yeah. It is so homoerotic and psychosexual that we're going to talk about that too. But yeah. I, I would yeah. love I would love Let's, to discuss Metallica and I Disappear and why we are adapting the format of our show to discuss a song that's not really not even in the movie. Before we dive in, let's listen to a little bit of Metallica's I Disappear. Please don't sue us. Can you walk us through some of the context around this particular song from Metallica and like, where did it come from? What was its intended release supposed to look like? And like, what happened when it got leaked on Napster? Yeah. So this was in 2000, I believe. And, you know, this is sort of like we are ending this era of soundtracks when like soundtracks tied to movies were really big, right? Like think Spider-Man, think all of these movies, they would have these soundtracks and they would always have like one or two featured songs that really drove the soundtrack. And for Mission Impossible 2, it was this Metallica song, you know, this was like post load and reload Metallica. I think reload had come out in 97. So it'd been a couple of years since we'd heard anything from them. And the big selling feature was like, Oh, this, like this new mission impossible movie directed by John Woo. It's going to have this Metallica song on it. Unheard Metallica song. And people were really excited about it. And then what happened was all of a sudden, I think it was Lars Ulrich that initially had heard it and it was playing on the radio, but the song wasn't even done on their end yet. Like someone had gotten a pre-release version of the song and it was playing on the radio. And uh, he sort of was like, well, how did this happen? And he sort of like traced it back to Napster, which was really quite new at the time as well. You know, Napster had come online the year before in 1999. It it started in May of 99. It kind of started to take off in June of, of 99. And we were still sort of in this like, 
real gray area with the internet as it was coming online as like a mass user sort of thing. And it, it spurned this larger conversation about, you know, digital rights um, and the internet and all of this stuff. And it was always supposed to be the single that was going to come out when the soundtrack came out. And then they sort of had to scramble and figure out what to do. And it eventually came out as a maxi single, which was like a CD single you used to buy from the record store. And they put it out on vinyl as the Napster version in 2021 as well, which is like them sort of reclaiming it. <laughs> Can't but, beat them, join them. Yeah, exactly. But it was like, it was this thing, and it spurned this really big, at the time, you know, it was a huge conversation about the Napster and, and the Napster. God, I just sounded like everybody's grandmother. I apologize. <laughs> you know, it spurned this big conversation about like, well, who owns what and how do we share the things that we don't necessarily own uh, in a way that was different from what we used to. Well, so I know that Dr. Dre was also like around the same time because Metallica sued Napster and I believe Dr. Dre did too, but Metallica's case got, I think, a lot more attention and correct me for the record if I got any of that wrong, because I I was pretty young when this happened. So like I remember it happening, but I didn't pay it very close attention because I was like too busy watching TRL. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I was a teenager at the time, you know, in 99 and 2000, I was 17, 18. And I mean, I definitely got this song off Napster. Sorry, Lars. I stole it. <laughs> I stole it. I'm not sorry. And because we kind of didn't know, you know, like before you would like, you would trade tapes and CDs with people. Like we always traded music with each other in a way when like, look, somebody wasn't paying for that song when I would give it to them on a mixtape. But it was, this became something totally new and different. The thing to me that that's the, one of the more interesting levels of the story is that it wound up on the radio and like no radio station would if they knew what they were doing was illegal, which we know it is now, but no radio station at the time, if they knew what they were doing was illegal, would open themselves up to a lawsuit by playing a song that they obtained illegally. Yeah. And so like this, this as speaking as like a creative person, like it's my biggest fear for something that is not done to get out there in the world. So like, I definitely understand why Metallica was like very pissed, but you can also see the radio station clearly had no idea what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, I mean, it was such a gray area, right? Like, we hadn't really explored this idea yet. And like you say, Rachel, like, just before, like, before Metallica took Napster to court, the, like, a conglomerate of record labels also had taken them to court, right? And because, like, everybody was trying to figure out okay, music has moved online and is going digital and MP3 is becoming a thing that we need to be concerned about. How do we monetize this in a way that makes money for the record labels, right? Because like ultimately the RIA and the music industry exists to make money for the music industry. And then sort of Lars steps in front of it. And like you said, other people did as well. And other people took the opposing side, right? Like Chuck D argued in favor of Napster and like Courtney Love and other people argued in favor of Napster. But like Lars was really sort of the like, of all people, the drummer from Metallica was like yeah. the face of this larger battle. Yeah, it does really feel like, well, today, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but it does feel like with 23 years of perspective, and especially given the conversations we're having today about AI created, fan created music and streaming and artists being paid fractions of pennies on the dollar for like a single stream and like this whole gutting of the middle class in well everywhere but specifically in the music world and artists like do you think that Lars and Metallica and anyone who was against Napster are they 
Were they kind of like, did they have a point where they, are they on the right side of history given where we're at now? I think so. You sort of like referenced this as well, this idea of like, they weren't ready for that song to be out there, right? Like, you know, a band like that is operating on such a level and they weren't really done making it yet. And it was already on the radio, like the ability for them to have control over when this new single, their first in three years was being released, that got sort of taken away from them. And as a creative person, like if I'm writing something and somebody got into my drafts and was like, hey, here's an un edited essay that Nico wrote I would not like that and like and I think like you say you know like time in the rear view it's like okay Lars Lars kind of had a point and like these people that like Trent Reznor was also like arguing like he didn't like the Napster thing either but like you know Lars got sort of turned into a caricature right like Mm -hmm. there was cartoons making fun of him and all this so yeah how does how does Lars become a villain in this story because he was the punchline in a in a such a significant way for several I mean I still kind of think he's a punchline today yeah but how does he become this relatively he's not the lead of the band how does he become the most famous member of Metallica for something kind of shitty? I mean, you could argue and you could really sort of, if you really wanted to drill down at it, I would say if they were a different band, it probably would have been different. But Metallica was a metal band in 2000. They were like a classic metal band in 2000 and they didn't have the cultural cachet that another band would have. If Trent Reznor had been like the louder voice of this thing, it might have been different. But Lars was the drummer for Metallica and Metallica hadn't put a record out in three years. And their last record was Reload. People didn't really like Reload all that much. They were in this sort of not decline of their of their career necessarily, but they weren't, you know, like a culturally relevant, super popular band. And for sure that played into it. Lars also did stuff like he took a printout of all the names of people that were sharing his song on Napster and like took it to the offices and like mm-hmm. just imagine slamming down a list of like, here's 30,000 names on paper where you've got to like peel the things off the side, you know, like a dot matrix printer, like that takes time <laughs> yeah, and effort. Yeah. And he delivered that. I have a very vivid memory of, this is a few years later when Napster was more or less done and then like LimeWire and I don't know K- uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. took its place. I have a very clear memory of my mom at the dinner table like asking me, do you download music? And maybe you should not download music in our house because like what if you there were all these stories you know in the newspapers about like some 15 year old kid in Iowa got sued by some major did, label. Did and, any well, of those ever go to court though? I re- I, I, I don't, don't think so. I think it was yeah. all just just saber rattling. You wouldn't on download the RAA the car. You wouldn't doubt. <laughs> but if you had a car and you said I will make you a copy of that car, yeah. I'd be like, shit, yeah. Yeah, give me a Have car you got- <laughs> for free. Give me a car. Have you seen, so I think maybe I saw this at the time, but I definitely haven't seen it since. But there there was like a an MTV PSA with Lars in it where Damon Wayans, uh, one of the Wayans brothers, is downloading stuff on his, lap, on his computer. He's supposed to be in this dorm room. And then Lars comes like running in and, being like have, like, have you seen that PSA that I'm talking about? No. There was a thing, because he also did a thing like the MTV Movie Awards that year, the year after. Like Lars was very that, aware of his that's like, what I'm talking visibility about. at the time. Yeah. yeah, I think it was. I think that's what it was. Because he like, one of the Napster guys like came on stage wearing a Metallica shirt that he- Where, Yeah, Sean Parker came on with a Metallica shirt on. <laughs> and said like, made a joke about stealing it or something like that, didn't he? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> it was like this weird thing, but like, I mean, Lars was very aware of his like 
of his place in all this. Like, and I feel like he didn't get enough credit for having a better sense of humor about it than he probably could have. Like, he was portrayed as this like miserly, like he might as well have been like taking Tiny Tim's crutches while he was trying to like take his yeah. want this one song. He wasn't even saying like take all of our catalog off the internet. He was like, I don't want this song that isn't even out yet. I don't want it to be on your service that nobody fully understands yet. I hate that we're defending Lars Ulrich. I know, I know, me, because I also am like, dirty. he kind of just seems like such a, like, I don't know. I've also like, I've changed my mind on Metallica so many times over the years. And right now I'm in, I listen to I Disappear earlier and I was like, oh, do I like this song actually? It's not a bad song. I kind of liked it. <laughs> but it's, it's it, especially, especially if you see what Metallica has become since then, yeah. like this might be their last good Song. If this had gone differently, we could have saved ourselves from saying anger entirely. <laughs> I have little to no opinion on Metallica other than that I did see them live at Lollapalooza one year and I thought they were expert performers. I just really enjoyed the performance and just kind of left it at that. I mean, they're great. They're great players. They know what they're, they're one of those bands that's like, I guarantee, like, I mean, they made a documentary about how none of them like each other, but like, yeah, you know, like I saw Dinosaur Jr. last year and I was like, here's three guys that don't like each other. And I love this band. And this is boring as hell to watch because they just do not want to be hanging out with each other. They're like, they're at their job and they don't like it that much, but they're sure good at it. I got, I got that feeling about Fifth Harmony. Yeah, totally. Right. It's just like, Yeah. Why are we here? No. You guys don't want to be here. You're just really good at this. Weirdly, this is not the only time we'll mention the 2000 MTV Movie Award, <laughs> which was dominated by Mission Impossible 2 and included like cameos by Tom Cruise and all this other stuff that actually had its own ripple effects in the entertainment world for you know a decade to come. It might be everyone's least favorite Mission Impossible, but it's, this is my favorite Tom Cruise Hera Oh, oh yeah, man. this is like Best hair. this is good hair for him. This is a good hair. Good year. hair. He's got the vanilla sky hair. I'm so into it. I think yeah. vanilla sky deserves another look back. I I agree. I one of my it. least favorite movies of all time. I think I liked it because Jason Lee was in it, and I would watch a movie if Jason <laughs> yeah. Lee was in it. You know, I like I don't like Jason Lee. I don't like people in masks. <laughs> I Mission like Impossible like, right out for you though. Well, uh, and Charlie's no, Angels it's like, too. It's like my weird autism thing, like like if if a mask doesn't like portray emotion, like if I can't right. mask is like blank, yep. it freaks me sure. out. Well, and, it is uh, freaky. It doesn't make the movie not. It's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say too that I did not realize I felt I think I've seen the first Charlie's Angels from two thousand like McG. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I think I've seen that movie a trillion billion times because I had it on DVD and I was obsessed with it, but I did not. Get the face mask reference until oh, until you saw until sure, I saw yeah, Mission yeah, yeah. You know, I have a, I have a prop from the first Charlie's Angels movie, like five feet away from me, right? What is it? So, friend of the show, Alexandra Kalinowski, who is a composer, a composer for my movies. Her parents were set decorators, and they did the set decoration for the first Charlie's Angels movie, among many, many other movies. Yeah. Oh, and there was a velvet portrait of Andre the Giant in their headquarters yes, or whatever. Yeah, and that is hanging. The actual one is hanging like right there on the wall of my office and was given to me by Spike McHugh, a.k.a.'s husband, as like a little housewarming gift. Can you send me a copy oh. of that? I can, I can hear I can just just rotate my camera. I'm so jealous. Oh, hold on. I'm so jealous. Hold on. We're getting there. Wow. I've oh, seen it, so but beautiful. I didn't know. There he so is. Beautiful. I loved Andre the Giant. Uh, me too. Okay. 
So okay. I don't know where we are. Well, in the I wanted to basically walk us through what the outcome was of Metallica versus Napster Inc. I mean, I think we all know what the outcome was in a general sense because there is no more Napster. Well, except for like a there streaming is. service, I think it's it's like. But come on, I know. But the, but who is but there, who uses it? There, so what 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 was the outcome of Metallica's lawsuit? Well. Before I, I do want to, I have a quote here from Lars from the reading, and I think it kind of ties back into something we talked about earlier. So, um, in, in his testimony to Congress, when Lars was testifying about the internet in front of Congress, which is a, such a funny thing in 2023, but in 2000, this was huge news. Oh he says, uh, Napster hijacked our music without asking. They never sought our permission. Our catalog of music simply became available as free downloads on the Napster system. I don't have a problem with any artist voluntarily distributing his or her songs through any means the artist elects at no cost to the consumer if that's what the artist wants but just like a carpenter who crafts a table gets to decide whether to keep sell it or give it away shouldn't we have the same options like you know it's so like looking at it in hindsight it is kind of like yes you're right you should have that like this all it all happened in this way that sort of blew up Lars as this like again it's so funny to be like hard line defending Lars Ulrich but also like he kind of got done dirty by this whole process because really he was just saying like look we deserve to have a say in what happens with the stuff we make I mean it's so different now but like so the court like ruled in favor of uh, Metallica ultimately, and because this was right on the heels of a sec of a previous lawsuit that was brought to them by like the five heads of the five record labels in this like mafiosa style, where they went to the courts and was like, "We need to be making a lot more money off music if it's going to be digital." And you know, they sort of had to go through and find all the people on Napster that were like sharing illicit or like illegal songs one of the napster guys eventually like they got an email where he admitted that he knew people were sharing illegal downloads and then he had to leave the company i think it was sean fanning no sean parker had to leave um because he was he wrote an email that he's like oh yeah people are using stolen stuff all the time and then so he got busted that he had to leave and kind of like shortly thereafter like napster lived and died in a very short period of time it was like it was over and done in a couple of years but it kind of like this era, this like the 2000s era, this like 1999 to 2001, this kind of defines the internet as we use it right now. I feel like there's so much that happens in these three years that like the ripple, the butterfly effect, if this hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't have Spotify. We would be like using Tumblr still and the, the grass would be greener. Maybe because, I mean, we all know that Facebook was like hugely inspired by Napster and also had like sean parker was so influential in in that too so like this might be the beginning of web 2.0 in earnest i think so yeah. napster did a thing that i think is really important to the birth of the internet as a mass use thing which is it took a thing that was like a niche thing for like gearheads and weird nerds and like stuff like that and like it became a thing that was easy for people to understand its use and it was easy for them to use and even like this was when like broadband is starting to come online. People are starting to have better access to the internet. Like I lived in the Yukon and I could use Napster. And if that's the case, then a lot of people could start to use it. And like, did it take me two days to download a whole Melancholin album at some point? Of course it did. <laughs> Melancholin. But it's probably super worth it when you've got Mel yeah. the Melancholin album. When I burned it, when I burned that yeah. Melancholin album to a CDR and was playing it at the skate park with all my like burnout friends. 100% worth it. Worth every hour. Oh, my God. There is this thing of democratizing this music. It spread a bunch of artists' music to to corners of the world that it may not have. This is in the MySpace era, but like Panic at the Disco got their big break because they posted basically their sound alikes of Fallout Boy on the Fallout Boy's MySpace. And then 
you know, then they become this huge band. So the internet was a huge democratizing agent for breaking new artists. And just like anything, then it's like the gold rush. And I think that we are just at the very end of like, we got to witness the end of that gold rush. And now it's, you know, and now we're just in like the weird, like downward spiral of like the digital age of the internet. I also, I always have this wonder, and I wonder how the both of you feel about this too, is like, if I disappear, had it been leaked and had it, leaked early to the radio and hadn't become the story that it did and was just a song that plays for 30 seconds over the credits after the main Mission Impossible theme, would it be talked about at all? Would people just forget about it? When people talked about this era of soundtracks, would they be like, wasn't there a Metallica song, but no one could remember it? Like, you know, that idea of like, all press is good press. Did the word of mouth kind of work in its favor? Maybe. Like, I always sort of wonder about this. I think it would be in the same, on the same level as like Vindicated, which was the Spider-Man 2 song by Dashboard Confessional, right? It's just like, oh yeah, this song existed in this era, but but it and, wouldn't uh, have this like flag planted in it. There was a Nickelback song too, right? Somewhere. Oh, Hero? Hero? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. There yeah. was a Nickelback yeah. song, all right. It, yeah. It was. Yeah. Look, I live in Canada, so maybe this is like a byproduct of being <laughs> Canadian. And also, my yeah. cousin, who's the metal guy, eventually worked for Chad Kroger in his home studio. Nick, that that song, Hero, was every. I was like working in construction at the time, and you would be like on a job site on the top of like a thousand-story building, and just Hero by Nickelback with I think the other guy that sounds exactly like Chad Kroger that was in one of those million bands that sounded. He was like the state, the guy from Stain. Stained, I think. Yeah, I think it was the two of them. <laughs> Josie Scott, maybe. Is that his name? It feels like a guy's name that would be in one of those bands. Yeah. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I have like a very similar, like for us, it was like Californication or something at this time. Uh, I I do want to say that if anybody is interested in learning more about this entire era of of changeover from like physical music sales and, and, and the tension between the internet undoing this Greg Cott has a really good book. It's been out for, I, I think, a few years, quite a few years now, but it's still really like when I read it, I think in like 2009, I felt like I was just reading a book about my teenagehood. So uh, it's called Ripped, How the Wire Generation Revolutionized Music. And again, that's by Greg Cott. He's a, I want to call him a friend of the pod because I have been on um, his podcast that he hosts with Jim Deorgatis, uh, Sound Opinions. And it's not like this is a uniquely a problem from 20 years ago because like, not to be that guy, but right outside our window right now, mm-hmm. there are 180,000 people on strike because their creative work is being shared on the internet and they're not seeing the benefits of it. And Nico, you mentioned that this like mafia stock conglomerate of the five record labels went to try to sue Napster to get their piece of the pie. I I don't think that anyone's under any kind of delusions that they would have shared their piece of the pie with the artists. And so the only difference between like what's happening now and what was happening then is that the big corporations weren't making money then are making money now and have a vested interest in like keeping things the way that they have been for the last 20 years so that the artists like still get fucked yeah and i wonder you know like if this fight had been at the time you know when we were fighting for digital rights on the internet if the fight had been more artist forward instead of business forward i wonder how that would have changed right because it did sort of become this thing that became very favorable for people that own the rights to digital music which is almost never really the artist right like people aren't making that cut I'm seeing a lot of people sort of having this conversation now with the ongoing strike we're seeing um, and all support to everybody like out there striking right now in like 
how can we haven't seen a similar action in the music industry, you know, like, and what would it take to see that happen? You know, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how to better democratize digital and streaming to be more fair to artists as opposed to only fair for record labels. And it's a hard question and I don't have an answer to it, but it is an interesting thing. Yeah, for music, it needs like five extra years of excavation. Yeah. Right. Because like music inspired the AMPTP to, to put whatever is in place in place now in 2007 and eight. And so like, I th- think they need to, we need to dig down a little bit more and see that everything that's shared digitally through streaming or downloads or whatever is like completely screwing the artists over. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen discussions about what's going on in the WGA writer strike and, and now the SAG strike there, there's been a lot of comparison making about like what, happened in the music industry 20 years ago uh, and the debate about free product or more available product and and there it's it's too dense to really like pack it into just like one statement but i i have seen like like now the workers the creators within the film and tv industry are are drawing rightful comparisons to what the music industry experienced in terms of like a, like a breakdown because of the internet and the availability that the internet kind of brings us like the, the darker side, just a new way to gatekeep. Right. Mm. Just speaking of hindsight, I do want to read a 2014 quote from Lars. when he was giving a Reddit AMA, he said, I wish we had been better prepared for that shitstorm that we found ourselves in. I was stunned that people thought it was about money. People use the word greed all the time, which was so bizarre. The whole thing was about one thing and one thing only, control. Not about the internet, not about money, not about file sharing, not about giving shit away for free or not, but about whose choice it was. If I want to give my shit away for free, I'll give it away for free. That choice was taken away from me. History has proven that we were somewhat right. And he said that in uh, 2013, the year before, to Huffington Post. 10 years, 10 years gone from that statement. (laughs) And he's only gotten more right. And and l- like you said, you know, maybe he shouldn't have printed out all of the users' names on a dot matrix printer and and slammed <laughs> them in the Napster office because he made it about himself versus his own fans, yep. which I think is like one of the big problems. If he had the PR sense to make it about about this, the thing that he says in 2013, then I think that we would have had a potentially would have had a different cultural outcome of like who we think Lars is. But it was so unprecedented. He had no road to look ahead to, right? Like he couldn't see like, oh, when so-and-so did this exact same thing, I could act, you know, better or worse or whatever. Like he was unfortunately the barometer and like, and that's a hard, that's a hard thing to carry because ultimately you're going to live or die based on how you acted and everybody's going to forget about what everybody else, like I did a podcast about Napster. I did a show called You're Wrong About Last Year. Uh, about Napster and you know like when I mentioned that Chuck D like took out an op-ed in New York Times about like I'm pro Napster people are like he did what like people forget that stuff you know because it's so much about what Lars did I'm a big fan of you're wrong about and the kind of the overarching theme of you're wrong about is taking history's maligned women and kind of reappraising them and I, I kind of want to do that with both Lars and Tom Cruise because at different points in the 2000s, they were both made to be villains for things that weren't like they deserve to be villains for certain things. The, the snare drum on St. Anger, for example. Um, <laughs> but they, they got shit for, for things that they didn't quite deserve. 
And so if we want to, we can we can start talking about my man, Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think that it's time. Hell yeah. yeah. So, it's also a Mission Impossible in its own way. It's yes. a praise Tom Cruise in 2023. It, it is. And I'm not going to really talk about Scientology all that much because a lot of hay has been made about Scientology and they are notoriously very litigious. So it is my opinion that Scientology is a deeply weird practice <laughs> And uh, they probably should be looked into for their labor practices, their land scams. By the way, my name is Rachel Broad. <laughs> um, so much thanks, like thanks, Aviv. No problem. <laughs> much like Mission Impossible itself, the behind-the-scenes story of the Mission series and Tom Cruise's own Hollywood saga has a ton of twists and turns. And at the risk of using a movie to reference another movie. Uh, Tom Cruise has been basically the Forrest Gump of the internet age. So I have been fascinated by Tom Cruise for a long time. His charisma, the Scientology thing, the couch thing, the perennial question of whether or not he's actually a good actor. The single tooth thing pointed out to me by my friend, friend of the show, Natalie Beer. Wait, what's the single tooth thing? So if you look at Tom Cruise's earlier work specifically top gun his two front teeth are kind of shifted so he has one giant mono tooth <laughs> he's like a beaver in the front he's like it's like a beaver but one and so natalie my love we did like a quarantine watch of top gun and she's like look at the tooth and now i can't look at him without seeing the, the single central tooth. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, I sorry. Everyone. I haven't seen the new Mission Impossible yet, and I, now I will, and I'll see it in IMAX, and I'll be like, well, it's tooth Since time. then, I think peri- progressively over the years, his teeth have been have been adjusted, but like, go back and watch like something from the 80s, and you're like, what the, where the fuck? <laughs> What's going in, on? In Cocktail, he's really in his tooth era, and then like, yeah, it just sort of like shifts over big. time, yeah. I also love that you go with co- immediately go with cocktail the the movie that gave us Kokomo. I mean, I've never great I've never seen cocktail. Great soundtrack. I used to great, yeah. I played that soundtrack Kokomo. so much in our house when I was a kid because it was one of the few CDs we had. I just wrote a column about good soundtracks, terrible source material or like visuals, cocktail. and I almost mentioned cocktail and then decided not to because I know that cocktail does have some kind of cult. <laughs> audience cocktail hive roll out yeah yeah you don't want the cocktail stands to come for you they'll never they're like swifties but different and weird (laughs) i i think it's just more that i wanted to like pick from movies and shows mostly movies that were just objectively like most people can't defend right Right. yeah Uh, and then there are some movies that have that were like, like they flopped upon release like empire records with uh, it's soundtrack, but now it's like a cult classic and everyone loves it. And so I wanted to be very careful about like things that history has making people mad. Happened. Yeah. What? Wait, what? <laughs> about making people mad. Yeah. You, you yeah. don't want to get us blossom heads mad. Most of us are in our 40s. <laughs> oh, do you listen uh, yeah. to the Lawrence Brothers podcast? Who are the Lawrence Brothers? I, I do not. Yeah, like Joey Lawrence. Oh, no, um, Blossom. But the three of them have a podcast and they talk a lot about Blossom. It's pretty do they have a cool. podcast oh called Whoa? I think it is might be called I Whoa. I would love it but if that's what it was called. TLDR, they brought Matt LeBlanc when they were doing Friends to the Blossom set because he couldn't nail Joey Tribbiani. And they made him watch Joey Lawrence oh, wow. on Blossom to, to get his character down. Wow. I did know that they did, like weren't sure what Joey's shtick should be other than being pretty. 
Yeah. And being and, a struggling actor. And they brought him down to the Blossom set. <laughs> Crazy, Holy, right? Poof, yeah. Mind well, blown. Get ready. Yeah. There's going to be more explosions in your brain in a second. So it seems as though Tom Cruise, not Joey Lawrence, but Tom Cruise has been at some of the biggest inflection points of the 21st century, either as his most famous on-screen avatar, Ethan Hunt, or as himself, Thomas Cruise Mapother Fourth. So, quick background. Tom Cruise is from Syracuse, New York, which sounds like an impossible fact, <laughs> because in my consciousness, at least, he just, like, hatched fully formed <laughs> from some movie star planet. Yeah. Um, and his cousin is William Mapother, who is... Also known for playing in Ethan in a J.J. Abrams production, no less, as the creepy guy Ethan from the show oh, Lost. Oh, that guy. That guy. And he is in Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible too. too. I guess. That's Tom Cruise's I cousin? I knew. Yes. I did know this. Oh. I remember that was such a thing at the time when Lost was. I was like, oh, did you know that was Tom Cruise's cousin? Oh, I didn't know until like this morning. And I was like, mother <laughs> fuck. He always plays oh, the I mean- creepy guy in everything, too. Yeah. Like He's in like, we yeah, watch a lot a creep- of like, you know, your monks, your mentalists. You're like, look, if there's a guy who's <gasps> better at solving crimes than the cops, we will watch it in our house. And he's always a yeah. creepy guy in one of those shows. He but does. You, he does have one of those faces. He looks like a caricature <laughs> of Tom Cruise. He's got like the floppy hair <laughs> yeah. and the kind of big nose and the kind oh of squeaky eyes. And you're like, oh wow! Like Tom just got the right collection of genes. It's like if a so, child had to draw Tom Cruise from memory in five minutes. Exactly. <laughs> I was I was gonna say like a Picasso. Cruise. <laughs> Picasso Tom Cruise would so, be like that would be my bio if I was Tom Cruise's cousin. A, yeah. a wax statue of Tom Cruise left out in the sun briefly. <laughs> yeah, struck by lightning All turned right. to a real boy. Can't, can't dunk on creepy Ethan forever. So Tom grew up Catholic. He described his father as an abusive bully. And it's a really sad yet all-American story. He would channel some of this fatherly angst into his Oscar-nominated role as Frank T.J. Mackey. Once again, sadly predicting the future of incel culture in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, which came out the same year as Mission Impossible 2. We we're talking in about which I won't ha- let us do a podcast on because I no. don't want to watch it. What? I, I, I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. I don't want to. Lo- no, I'll bring it up. I'll get in front of you it. Talk, I don't want to watch it. I mean, it. let's talk soundtracks. And, yeah, Amy, Amy Man is pretty good. Well, I, well, okay, 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 okay. Listen, I want to get, I want to do an episode about it's Amy Man. On Buffy, and if you'd like to join us for that, Nico. Nico's the third host of the show at this point. Well, I've already sent her the contract. I will talk about Amy Man as long as the day. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll come back, but I will make are us you, talk. Are about- you a Buffy fan? I've never seen. I missed because I didn't have cable when I was a kid. So I like we watched season one in the start of the pandemic. We just haven't finished it. But every like other week, my partner is like, you know what we should do. Well, you should listen to your okay, partner. Okay, I will. I, then, I mean, I, then, I tend to. Yeah, I <laughs> calls back and then we'll, was I really, because she has a really great spot on Buffy, the final season. Okay. Magnolia is a film bros, film bro movie. That's why I hate it. I, this is what I'm, this, I'm, I'm helping yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. It's only good for the soundtrack. It's just good for the Amy Mann song about Dave Foley. Dave Foley. That's who Save Me is about. No, that I don't like that at all. This came out a couple of years ago. I can't remember who said it first, but it was about, I guess, Amy Mann was like going through a breakup at the time and Dave Foley had divorced one of his 15 wives. And because uh, <laughs> uh, he's an oft divorced gentleman. Oh, I thought I was worried that it was about Dave Foley. Like you ought to know is about Dave Cooley. No, no, different. Where it's like he's the bad They guy. like sort of connected right where they were sort of in this low period and they were both sort of like feeling like they were both kind of unlovable and they both sort of taught each other that they were. They just didn't love each other and then 
Amy Mann would go on to marry Michael Penn and Dave Foley would go on to divorce 35 other people. <laughs> That's the movie. <laughs> I would watch story. a movie or at least like a TV miniseries about the creation of Save Me. So at the age of 18, with the blessing of his mom and stepfather, Tom moved to New York City to pursue acting. He worked as a busboy. He went to L.A. to try out some TV roles. He first appeared in a bit part in a film from 1981 called Endless Love. And then he got his major supporting role debut as a military academy student in TAPS. His dad was a defense contractor for the Canadian Armed Services, which like, I don't know if that informs necessarily all of the military dudes he was playing, but play the character in Taps, I am willing to go on a limb and say, was partially inspired by his father. And then his career really hits the hyperdrive, and he's in The Outsiders, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and then... That same year, 1983, he's also in All the Right Moves and, of course, Risky Business, which has been described as a Generation X classic and a career maker for Tom Cruise. And now a lot of this information is going to come from Amy Nicholson's incredible L.A. Weekly profile on Tom Cruise uh, as the Internet's first victim. And it basically talks about the infamous couch jumping incident. And yeah, this Amy Nicholson piece is incredible. It came out about 10 years ago. But this is from that. Quote, when Risky Business turned him, a 21-year-old kid with three bit parts and one flop on his resume, into an overnight sensation, he disappeared. Quote, I'm not personally ready to do this, he told the film's publicity team. Instead of giving interviews and swanning around Hollywood with best friends Sean Penn and Emilio Estevez, <laughs> Cruz ditched the flashbulbs and escaped to London, where he hid out for two years while filming Ridley Scott's ill-fated legend. Have you scene legend no yes it's weird yeah it's not good and don't watch it tim curry plays the devil <laughs> it it's it's a weird one i had to watch it in like seventh grade english class but by the time tom flew back to america he was half forgotten he was a breakout talent who was shortlisted as one of 1983's hottest faces by the la times but then he vanished meanwhile his buddies had been christened the brat pack and sean penn was marrying madonna Exactly the kind of splashy spectacle Cruz wanted to avoid. So we're not going to go into Sean Penn and Madonna. There's a lot of stuff there. But okay, 1986 rolls around and Tom links up with Ridley Scott's brother, Tony Scott, for a little movie about jet pilots. And whoops, wouldn't you know it? He is a next level sensation again, but he's still getting compared to his Brat Pack co-stars. So this is Amy Nicholson again. To promote Top Gun, Cruz finally agreed to his first round of major interviews in 1986. He wanted to make one thing clear, quote, I want no part of this brat pack. He insisted to Playboy, putting me in there is absolutely absurd and it pisses me off because I work hard. He didn't want to be a trend. He wanted to be a legend. And that meant controlling his public image. No drunken nights, no false moves. The attention had to be on his work. After Top Gun was the number one box office hit of 1986, Paramount offered to quintuple his salary if he'd make Top Gun 2. Instead, he agreed to play second fiddle to Paul Newman in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money, which itself was a sequel to a movie called The Hustler. So money versus money, swagger versus respect. It's 
the most telling choice in Tom Cruise's career. He seized the chance to learn from and link himself to the old-fashioned, closed-mouthed actor he wanted to become. Forget the new Brat Pack. He'd be the last classic movie star. And this is his quote. When I get to be Newman's age, I'm looking to still be playing the great characters he plays. Tom Cruise said in his first cover story for Interview Magazine, which coincidentally was written by Cameron Crowe, who would direct Tom and Jerry Maguire. And Vanilla Sky. And Vanilla Sky. Yes. Fun fact this year, Tom Cruise turned 61, the age that Paul Newman was when he acted with Tom in The Color of Money. So for the next 20 years or so, Tom did the true artist thing. He claimed he didn't care about the paycheck or the accolades and set out to work with the greatest living auteur directors. If you listen to last week's episode, you know I have very complicated feelings about the idea of an auteur. But he worked with the Pantheon and he picked them out like playing cards. So he had already worked with Francis Ford Coppola and The Outsiders, Ridley and Tony Scott in Legend and Top Gun. We got Scorsese in The Color of Money, Barry Levinson in Rain Man, Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin in A Few Good Men, Oliver Stone and Born on the Fourth of July, which was his first Oscar nomination, Ron Howard in Far and Away, Sidney Pollack in The Firm. So, so he's, he is making it a point to work with the greats. That's all he wants to do. This is Amy Nicholson again. Cruz didn't make an action movie for the first 15 years of his career. Even in Top Gun, he never throws a punch. And in 1996, Cruz told Box Office Magazine, I'd been offered a lot of kind of different action movies, but nothing really interested me. I thought I'd seen it all before. So with the number of auteurs to collect dwindling, Tom started producing his own movies with Paula Wagner, his producing partner. And his first was, you guessed it, Mission Impossible. He hired another auteur director, Brian De Palma, who, among incredible films, also wrote the opening scrawl to Star Wars. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah. He, Yeah, he wrote the text in yellow for the first Star ah. Wars movie. With a script written by David Kep, who wrote Jurassic Park and Death Becomes Her before this. And Robert Town, who wrote fucking Chinatown. Wow. So he spent all of the money he could getting the best talent he could. And it was based on the 1966 TV series Mission Impossible, which was kind of like a heist of the week show created by Bruce Geller. That Mission Impossible series lasted seven seasons and 171 episodes, and it gave us the iconic theme and some kind of visual and stylistic reference, as well as the most important thing was the character of Jim Phelps, who was introduced in season two. Peter Graves, who was Captain Over from Airplane, played jim phelps yes fun fact the mission impossible theme is in a weird time signature it's in five four and it was featured on an episode of american bandstand and no one could dance (laughs) i looked for a clip and i couldn't find it but there's a bunch of like articles that like uh, on that time that lalo schifrin went on american bandstand and confused everybody (laughs) oh my god so then in 88, there was a series reboot starring Jim Phelps now as the leader of the Impossible Mission Force team. And it takes place 15 years after the original series. It ran for two seasons until 1990 and had 35 episodes. Here's where things get a little hairy and spoilers for the first Mission Impossible. You've only had 27 years to watch it. <laughs> Jim Phelps in the movie, Jim Phelps returns as I, as the IMF team leader whose whole team is killed in the first sequence, including Brat Pack alum Emilio Estevez. Oh, it's like symbolic. Yeah. You've you've 
touched on the theme already. I think that Mission Impossible, the whole series is about him exercising some demons that he has about who he is and who he's supposed to be. But he, so he kills Emilio Estevez in the first, he's the first one to die, I think. And Jim Phelps turns out to be a traitor and the villain of the film. Peter Graves and the rest of the 88 cast had been offered to uh, reprise their roles from the TV series. But when they learned that they would either all die or become villains, they turned it down. Martin Landau, who played a character named Roland Hand in the original series, according to my dad, Roland Hand was like who Ethan was in the first movie. He's like the number two kind of muscle guy. He expressed his own disapproval concerning the film and in an MTV interview in 09, Martin Landau said when they were working on an early incarnation of the first one, not the script they ultimately did, they wanted the entire team to be destroyed, done away with at one time. And I was against that. It was basically an action adventure movie, not mission. Mission was a mind game. The ideal mission was getting in and getting out without anyone ever knowing we were there. So the whole texture changed. Why volunteer to essentially have our characters commit suicide? I passed on it. The script wasn't good either. <laughs> so I think it's important to note that they, he, this is, he says, an earlier draft of the script. Because I do think that the first Mission Impossible is that. There are only two gunshots that go off in the entire movie. And they're both like red herrings. I remember thinking it was going to be a lot more like, like I made up a whole idea of what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Probably looking something more like Die Hard. Right. Well, he does get to crawl through a vent. True. It was nothing like that, though. But even then, like, I think Die Hard also sort of gets misrepresented as being like a bigger action piece Mm -hmm. than it is like. True. Action movies have like changed into such thing in the modern era. But like at the time, yeah, there was a lot more like they were trying to do more character development and storytelling as opposed to like, look at all the CGI stuff we can make, which is a lot of what yeah. happens now. There's a lot of, ta- and and that's a thing that Cruz has f- tried to fight against in, later in his career. But yeah, there's a lot of cool tension and intrigue and people misrepresenting themselves in the first Mission Impossible. I think it's great. I think it's it's very, very good. But several cast members of the original TV series that ran from 66 to 73 reacted negatively to the film. Greg Morris, who plays one of the other characters in in the original TV series, was so disgusted with the film's treatment of Jim Phelps that he walked out. Fuck yeah. Yeah, that's a bull. That's a that's a big statement you make by not saying anything at all. Yeah. But had the Internet been around at the time the way it is today, we would have had probably a massive flop on our hands or at least some sort of like cultural pariah. Just look at Star Wars, The Last Jedi. (laughs) as an example but the plot deals quite a bit with the early internet ethan hilariously scours message boards and sends emails to addresses (laughs) like job at the (laughs) bible.com the real jesus christ 33 at yahoo.com yeah (laughs) the the movie doesn't quite know how to deal with this new thing called the internet and it's like trying its best but the film was a hit which of course meant a sequel. And in between missions one and two, Tom works with Stanley Kubrick on Eyes Wide Shut, which I think broke him in a significant way. Oh, Eyes yeah. Wide Shut holds the record for the longest continuous film shoot at 400 days. Oh, no. The shoot was so long that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's kids developed English accents during the production. 
So Tom finally may have come against an auteur that he couldn't like collect. Yeah, he did kind of do a glass menagerie thing. And Tom, who his whole thing is like, I want to be like Paul Newman. I want to charm the pants off of these old, old heads. Like Kubrick could not be charmed by anyone. So four years later, Ethan and a new crew return for Mission Impossible 2, directed by Hong Kong cinema superstar John Woo. As we mentioned early in the show, Woo is like the perfect person to go with for a Mission Impossible movie. We go from two gunshots to like a thousand gunshots. John Woo was coming off of the massive hit of Face Off. Is that why there are so many faces that come off? And the- Yes. <laughs> So I so okay. That's what I didn't see. I didn't even know that Wu had directed Face Off, and I was like watching all these. Oh, whoops! Like it's not really them moments, yeah. and, and there's so many. Yeah. There's a lot and of I was mask like, work. I was like, this is like this is like Face Off, but literally. They just had a lot of excess masks from Face Off, and he's like, oh, I gotta do something right, with right. all these masks. I think ultimately they had the budget for a bunch of trickery that John Woo wanted to do in Face Off but didn't have the money for. And he's like just like shoving it in to Mission 2. Another weird butterfly effect that proves that Tom Cruise is the keystone of the universe is the film's villain. Sean Ambrose is a rogue IMF agent who has a virus that might kill the whole world. And he's played by Scottish actor Dugray Scott. By the who, way, the who, villains by, in the f- who was in what, and what else is he in? I don't know. He was in Ever After. Was he? Oh, that's right. He, he plays is the guy the, in Ever He plays After. the prince. In the it, same year, I think. Two years earlier. Two years earlier. I think 98. So the first three mission movies deal with IMF agents that have gone rogue because they're just like evil, which is like, that's my favorite. At like the, the calls coming from inside the house sort of thing. It's the golden eye effect. But I, I, which I also love. So. Do Gray Scott was cast, among other reasons, because he looks like Tom Cruise and there's a ton of residual face off stuff, literally and figuratively, as well as like some real psychosexual stuff happening between Ethan and Sean Ambrose. Mission two is a is a real weird one. But to get Do Gray Scott, he had to remove himself from another film he was cast in, something as at Fox, directed by future Tom Cruise collaborator and noted sex pest Brian Singer. And it didn't have the box office bona fides like Mission Impossible did. It was basically for kids. And that movie was called X-Men. Wait, who was he going to be in X-Men? He was going to be Wolverine. Uh-oh. I mean, he's the right height. So Scott departed ah. the role of Wolverine, making way for Hugh Jackman, who was oh the number my. two in that position. Wow. And suddenly Hugh Jackman is one of the biggest stars in the world and one of the only other actors who has been playing the same character as long as Tom Cruise has. Because he's back for Deadpool 3 now yeah. as Wolverine. And Dugray Scott is that guy, is the prince from Ever After. From Ever Which, After. By the way, I have seen Ever After so many times that seeing Dugray Scott play this <laughs> like, like sadistic there's that guy like, from Ever After. It was like really hard to know how to feel about him because I was like, my younger self is still attracted to him. <laughs> it's like seeing Carrie Elwes in The Princess Bride and then seeing Carrie Elwes in every other thing he's ever done. He's in the new Mission yeah. Impossible movie. Is he really? Oh yes. my God. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I haven't seen, I'm so excited to see Mission Impossible 6. Here's where things start to take a turn. Even though Mission 2 made a bunch of money, it didn't quite have the cultural cachet that the first one did. And Tom started to become a self parody. He even did like a dueling Tom Cruise thing with Ben Stiller at the MTV Movie Awards in 2000 the same event where sean parker came out in a napster t-shirt 
That, by the way, served as the first inspiration for the Ben Stiller-directed film Tropic Thunder and is the reason that Tom Cruise is in Tropic Thunder. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And that's the Tug Speedman character is based on his impression of Tom Cruise that he did on the MTV movie. That's so funny. Because that was like the big thing with Tropic Thunder was like Tom Cruise plays a guy in it and you will never believe it. Yeah, he plays like the Harvey Weinstein character yeah. or whatever. With like hairy so, arms. The hairiest arms you ever yeah, see. Yeah, giant hands. Yeah. That was his idea too. He's just like, I'll be in the movie. Just give me giant hands. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So between Mission 2 and Mission 3, a lot of things happen, namely 9-11. So our taste in action movies changed radically. And Tom works with Cameron Crowe for a second time with Vanilla Sky and Steven Spielberg twice. Once in Minority Report, which Love is still Minority excellent. Report. So good. We'll watch that over and over. Anytime. And then 2005's War of the Worlds, which is not quite as good. Yeah, it's less I, good. And also bad. Actually, kind of, I kind of like it. It's not <laughs> I mean, bad. It's not but bad. It's less good. It's not bad. Yeah. And it was promoting War of the Worlds that Tom was booked on an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show. And he becomes one of the first victims of a new internet phenomenon called YouTube. So for context, what is largely considered to be the first YouTube video was uploaded on April 23rd, 2005. And Tom's couch jumping appearance on Oprah was on May 23rd, 2005. So YouTube had been active a month. So, Amy, the Amy Nicholson article is basically entirely about how we remember this one thing wrong culturally. And I think that there's an episode of You're Wrong About that also goes into great detail about this. But TLDR, everyone loved it. So this is from this is from Amy Nicholson. Harpo Studios seats 300 audience members and the show's producers try to match up their spectators with their guests. It's a recipe for good TV. Quote, they want the batshit people. This is one of their producers. That said that. <laughs> All those people that were in there were most likely picked because they're Tom Cruise fanatics. If you track down the full Tom Cruise episode on YouTube, only one user from Spain has bothered to upload it. I've seen the, it. The room is deafening. Oprah's first words to the live audience are, okay. Let me just say, you all are going to have to calm yourselves. They don't. They're on their feet. They're jumping up and down. She has to ask them to settle down twice more before Tom Cruise even walks on stage. And then the screams get even louder. And then Oprah starts screaming. And if you listen closely, you can hear Tom say, wow, is it like this every day? And Oprah just says, no, and shakes her hand, <laughs> shakes her head. And after a full minute goes by, Oprah starts to look annoyed. She says, it's too much. Sit down. <laughs> and Tom Cruise plays to that screaming when a fan in the crowd pumps both fit both fists in the air Tom Cruise pumps his back he kneels on the floor he makes the audience holler he simply keeps doing it <laughs> Tom Cruise was also playing to the daytime TV viewers at home predominantly female like the studio audience he flatters them he brings up being raised by women how he loves to treat women right the women wanted to hear that he was in love and Cruz who had just been anointed the third greatest movie star of all time by Premier Magazine beating out his hero Paul Newman by three spots was finally ready to loosen up and tell them Oprah was thrilled Tom Cruise was giving his first unchecked TV interview well ever and she ups the energy by getting physical. She ruffles his hair with both hands. She grabs his legs and arms as she presses him with personal questions about his public girlfriend of a month, Katie Holmes. 
Is it love? Will you marry her? Have you asked her father? You want more children? She clutches both of Tom Cruise's hands, pulls her face close to his, and asks if he will propose to Katie Holmes today. You know who also does this real quick? Jewish grandmothers. <laughs> Drew Barrymore does this now. People love her for it. It's crazy. She, it's she's like she's like on the floor and, and touching every guest. Right. And, I, and, yeah, the, yeah. and she gets the most emotional responses out she's of She's like them. sitting in people's laps. Yeah. 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 And so Tom Cruise gives a reasonable answer. He says, I have to discuss it with her. And then Oprah leans back disappointed. When Tom Cruise finally stands and grabs Oprah's shoulders, the moment that was remixed into that like viral Tom Cruise uses the force to kill Oprah thing, <laughs> he begs if they can talk about the new movie, War of the Worlds. And this is all been Amy Nicholson, but I want to stress that this is Amy Nicholson. It's a performance reminiscent of his Oscar-nominated role six years earlier as Magnolia's Frank T.J. Mackey. In that film, Mackey gets into a showdown with a pushy interviewer and deflects questions by showboating. When Mackey gets antsy, he does a backflip in his underwear. When Tom Cruise doesn't want to say if he's marrying Katie Holmes, he distracts attention by falling to one knee, a crowd-pleasing move, Mackie stole from Elvis. But Tom Cruise never jumps on a couch. It's Oprah who gives him the idea that he should stand on it. She thanks him for attending her Legends Ball, where she honored Rosa Parks and Coretta Scott King. And she says, I turned and looked at one point, and you were standing on a chair going, yes, yes. I love that enthusiasm. And minutes later, Tom Cruise stands on the couch for a second in reminiscence of that moment at the Legends Ball. And she continues to praise Tom about marrying Katie Holmes. And he says, I'm standing on your couch. As if that's the answer he thought was enough. All told, Tom Cruise is on the couch for less than three seconds of airtime. For two decades, Tom Cruise has tried to keep the spotlight on his work and now is fixated on him. Even the old guard, after years of chafing under his publicity restrictions, finally freed him from the need to appease our powerful Pat Kingsley, who is a PR person that he had departed with in 2004. But everyone spun this into a new narrative, which was Tom Cruise is crazy. No one, no one expected this thing to go mega viral. And for Tom Cruise, Mr. Cool, to be the butt of the joke. So the bloom is off the rose for Tom. In 2004, he parted with Pat Kingsley, but he needed a PR person. So he hired his sister, who didn't really have any experience to manage his PR. This could have contributed to the Oprah mishap in the first place, but it definitely contributed to what happened after that. This is Nicholson again. Guided by his sister's inexperienced hand, Cruz could only oblige proposing to Katie Holmes and then debating the issue of the use of antidepressants, which Scientology opposes, specifically by a postpartum Brooke Shields on the Today Show with Matt Lauer, which is now like he, Tom's in quicksand and he can't get out. Spielberg, who the story goes, was also booked on Oprah that day, but backed out because of Tom's fanaticism towards Scientology. Blame Tom's couch jumping thing for the poor performance that War of the Worlds did. By the way, War of the Worlds is a movie that does not need Tom Cruise jumping on a couch to like do poorly at the box office. I'm sure but it didn't help. It didn't help. Yeah. It's a property that is never really translated all that well. Even the, the first movie is not all that good yeah. either. And so now it's time for another Mission Impossible. Can Tom Cruise prove that he's still the kingmaker? 
Mission 3 had been in development since 2002, originally with Fight Club and Gone Girl director David Fincher slated to direct, but he dropped out in favor of another film, but he didn't make a film in that time. Uh, he later cited creative differences over the direction of the series. Then it went to Joe Carnahan, the director of NARC, which is a great movie. He also directed The Grey, the Liam Neeson Wolf movie, but that was far after this. And Carnahan developed a film for 15 months, and it was supposed to feature Kenneth Branagh playing like a Timothy McVeigh type, as well as Carrie Ann Moss and Scarlett Johansson and other roles. And they also got into it. Tom and Joe Carnahan got into it over the film's tone, and Carnahan quit too. So Cruz did what anyone does. He binges Alias. <laughs> he binge watches the first two seasons of Alias and is like, who's this guy, J.J. Abrams? Mm-hmm. Get me J.J. to direct this movie. And Abrams ultimately signs on and production was delayed a year because he was working on Alias and Lost at this time. And because it was delayed, Branagh, Carrie Ann Moss, Scarlett Johansson all departed from the project. And Ricky Gervais was cast as Benji Dunn. But due to the production delays, Ricky Gervais also left the project and was replaced by now permanent team leader mm. Simon Pegg. Oh, I'm so glad that happened. Right? Yes. The bullet yep. we dodged by not having to suffer through Ricky Gervais in this movie every time. <laughs> so when was the last time you saw Mission 3? <sighs> First year of the pandemic, maybe? Sure. We watched so them all. It's been, but Simon Pegg is doing like a Ricky Gervais thing. Kind of, sort of, yeah. And yeah. then in four, five, six, and seven, he's like, "Okay, I can just be Simon." He kind of like makes it his own thing. Yeah, Mission Three is my favorite, by the way. Everyone I've heard that it. it's good. I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's J.J. Abrams before he kind of like really leans hard on all the th- like on the J.J. Abrams of it all. Like he's still mm-hmm. sort of like you say, like he's post loss, but he hasn't done two Star Treks and a couple of wars. There aren't a, there aren't a ton of lens flares, but I think it is it has the best tightest story, and it has my favorite single Mission Impossible scene in it. Which one is that? Have you seen it, Rachel? No, I have not. Okay, so this but is like a spoiler. Alert. It's a mi- it's a minor spoiler. So Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman winds up being the bad guy. He plays a yeah. guy named Owen Davian, who's like an arms dealer, and yeah. Tom Cruise has to double Owen Davian at like a party at the Vatican. And uh, of course, of course he does. So, yeah. so it's, it's Tom Cruise isn't even in the scene. It's, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the, the masked Ethan Hunt holds Hoffman hostage and holds up a gun to his head and makes him read a card. And the card says, the pleasure of Busby's company is what I most enjoy. He put a tack on Miss Yancey's chair when she called him a horrible boy. I can't remember the rest of it, but it's this little poem and it, it was developed by a linguist because it contains all of the sounds in the English language and it's how they mimic people's voices. They're like recording that poem to give him like Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, voice. And it is my single favorite scene in any Mission Impossible movie. I love it so much. The second Twister alum, you know, if we have a Carrie Alves, we have a Philip Seymour Hoffman, we really got to get Helen Hunt in one of these things. Yeah, Bill Paxton, may he rest. Yeah, we get the AI recreation of Bill Paxton. Oh, God, if if the AMPTP has their way. (laughs) 
So yeah, so Tom Cruise has still got it. He took a massive pay cut, but he launched the movie career of J.J. Abrams and rebooted his own franchise. Missions 4 through 7 don't have quite as much intrigue and drama surrounding them as the first three, save for trying and failing to hand the franchise off to Jeremy Renner, which was a thing that we all tried to do in 2010. Just like, (laughs) give it to Jeremy Renner. He's got his own app. He's got his own app. You gotta trust a guy with his own app. Oh, yeah. Um, Elon Musk, Jeremy Renner, who else? The most trustworthy individuals, yeah. The triumvirate. Mission 4 gives The Incredibles director Brad Bird his first live-action movie. Missions 5, 6, and 7, along with other Tom Cruise vehicles like the Jack Reacher series, revived the career of The Usual Suspects scribe Christopher McQuarrie, who's now the forever director of the Mission franchise. And then... The internet struck again in 2020, trying to make Tom Cruise the butt of the joke one more time. Mm-hmm. When on the set of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Tom Cruise like freaked out at some crew members for not following COVID protocols. I had to write about this for work. The audio leaked on the internet. You can hear it if you want to. Rachel wrote about it. Tom Cruise is right. He was yelling at his crew for violating social distancing and says that the movie could get shut down if someone catches COVID and everyone would be out of a job. And as a producer, he was right to yell at them. Yeah, it like turned into this whole discussion, though, of like workplace abuse. And was it was it planted? Was he was he planting it? Uh, uh, I, I don't to know. Make I don't I, good guy or something. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I also don't really care. Well, and there was shades yeah. of the Terminator set with what's his name from who? Christian Bale, Christian Bale, who yeah. hot take was also right. I don't think you. I don't think you talk to people like that. But yeah. there was a lighting technician that was moving a light in the middle of a take, which is something that gets you fired. Yeah, for, I mean, like the way he talked to him was like, you know, like when you listen back to that audio, he's like being pretty out of line, but also like yeah. He, yeah. he had every right to be like, "Hey, you're in the you're like you're slowing everything down, and you're, you're what the fuck are you doing? Yeah." Man? yeah. So after being warped by Kubrick and shunned by Spielberg and mocked by the entire world, it begs the question, why is Tom still doing this? Why is Tom, as Christopher McQuarrie puts it, trying to kill himself for our entertainment? Well, narcissists do need to perform. That might be it, right? I mean, I'm not trying to be like someone who just boils everything down to narcissism, but I I have a, a good friend and... She is also an entertainment culture journalist, and she is probably one of the most insightful people on Hollywood and narcissism that I've ever met. I hope she writes a book about it one day. And she's like, yeah, I mean, most performers are narcissists. Complete narcissists. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, they've got to perform. And I think that Tom Cruise is a good movie star for the same reason he's a good Scientologist, for the same reason that he's a great narcissist, which is that he can do the things, right? He'll he commit. is the, he he is their scient- he's the Scientology Ubermensch. Yeah. And so I can I can tell my can I tell my favorite Tom Cruise story? I think you should. So this is on the set of Mission Impossible 6, which is Mission Impossible Fallout. So you can hear Christopher McQuarrie tell this story on the podcast itself. And the podcast is called The Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. You can, If you listen to the Mission Impossible Fallout episode, you can hear him tell this story, which is that in Mission 6, the big stunt was that they jump out of an airplane, right? They do the skydive. And so the way it was supposed to work is that the camera is mounted on someone's helmet and we circle Tom Cruise and Superman actor Henry Cavill in the 
200, the big airplane. And then the camera skydiver leads the actors out of the plane and Tom Cruise is actually skydiving, right? And the deal was that this person with a camera strapped to their head can't pull focus, right? They cannot adjust focus to catch Tom Cruise where he is. So Tom had to be exactly three feet from the camera lens and they get one jump a day right because it's so complicated and then lighting has to be right and so we get the first jump tom's out of focus we do it again the next day tom's out of focus again 12 days goes by and tom is out of focus every time and chris mcquarrie like pulls through aside and is like hey man like no one's ever done anything like this like it's okay if you can't do this and Tom Cruise is like, I'm getting three feet from him, Chris and Christopher McQuarrie goes to bed that night and he has like a, like a Christmas Carol type dream <laughs> and he sits up out of bed in a cold sweat and he's like the follow focus because when the operator is on the airplane, there's someone operating focus with a wireless follow focus and when a camera gets out of range of that, the focus just floats because it doesn't know where it should go. And so what the person should be doing is just switching off their wireless follow focus as soon as they jump. So Macquarie like pulls the guy aside. He's like, as soon as Tom jumps, switch off the follow focus. And jump 13, Tom Cruise is tack sharp. And he'd been doing it right every single time. There was a literal mechanical malfunction that was keeping the first take from being the take. Oh, my God. He's the real fucking deal. Yeah. Like, he's uh, a weirdo. Yeah. He's a narcissist. No one can do what he does. I mean, I, I read some stuff about Mission Impossible 2 and what he did. Like, he insisted on, like, when, when we first see his character again, he's, like, holding on by his the, hands the free climbing to, rocks yeah thing, free yeah. climbing rocks and and he, and the studios were nervous about him doing that because of obvious, obvious safety precautions so he doesn't have like a net to catch him but he does have like a, like an invisible harness and and some wires and that's all he has but he like i think tore his shoulder trying to like do that jump from one rock to the other and then when Dugray Scott is holding the knife in the last scene or the oh, final to the, fight his, to, to his and, eyeball. Yes. And he's yeah. holding the knife to his eyeball. That's apparently a real knife because, and I, and all this is ultimately based out of insecurity. If I can like boil it all the way down. Cause so like, there's a lot of tension because of Tom's insecurity that the sequel won't perform as well as the first movie. So him and Tandaway Newton are having some, I won't say difficulties because I think like she was trying to be very agreeable. It's very early yeah. in her career, but she did give an interview in 2020 to Vulture where she talked about how she was working opposite a quote, really stressed at quote dominant cruise. And, and they have yeah, negative chemistry. They have no chemistry in the movie whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. hard to see. Which was a shame. Yeah. And like she does say that he tries super hard to be a nice person, but the pressure he takes on a lot. And I think he has the sense that only he can do everything as best as it can be done. And the sad thing is he might not be wrong, which yeah. is like, right. It's like the self-fulfilling prophecy of of him learning how to fly F-15s and helicopters and all this other stuff because he desperately wants to be so so this is i think tom's act three he no longer wants to work with the auteurs he is now 
he he is the auteur. Yeah. A Tom Cruise movie is a Tom Cruise movie. And in that movie, he's going to teach himself how to do something that's physically impossible for our entertainment. I will say, and we talked about this off mic, Aviv, but one of my favorite recent Tom Cruise movies is The Edge of Tomorrow. Hell yeah. Love Edge of Tomorrow. Which is like the only time you see the, the Tom Cruise that we understand as an action hero the last 20 years be completely inept. <laughs> yeah, right. It's so funny. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, I don't want to love anything that he's in. I have complicated <laughs> feelings around him. But God, I love this movie and I would watch it every week. And that movie also, his character kind of embraces his Tom Cruise persona. Like he's this like talking yeah, head. It's kind very of self-aware. Asshole. Right. I think he is a little bit more self-aware than people give him credit for. And I think the mission movies are him exercising those demons. So it probably shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that the villain of the new Mission Impossible movie is the entity, which is an internet hive mind (laughs) that distorts the truth and warps the minds of the public through any form of media. Tom knows about that firsthand. So it's the woke mind virus. But it's AI. So it is it is the internet itself. Right. That he's that he's trying to kill. Okay, but says the, the I mean, hell yeah. says the person who's in another type of hive mind. Sure, like I no. said, I I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna scratch the Scientology. <laughs> <itch>. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. That's all I'm gonna yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that Scientology is. I think that they are getting more from him than he is getting from them because he is potentially a real life Superman, and they get to point to him and say, if you believe what we believe. You can be just like him. He's only, he's also one of the few remaining movie people or like professional people that hasn't distanced himself from the church. Everybody, most other people have like in recent years made tracks yeah. away from it, and he has not. Even, even Travolta, right? Yeah, even Travolta, and like you know, Beck has talked a lot about it, and you know, Jason Lee talked about it in an interview a number of years ago, and like most of the Rabisis, and yeah, yeah. Again, with the complicated feelings, Elizabeth Moss has not really distanced herself. Yeah, I I have it, it's weird. I She's feel kind of taken the have, well, you just don't understand. Stance. Yeah. But what wasn't she born into it? Her and Beck, right? And Giovanni Ribisi. Well, that tends to be what like like the caveat. Well, they were born into it. They don't know blah blah blah. But there I think are enough like action. I don't want to go to like into conspiracy theory land, but there are enough actions on her part on Elizabeth Moss's part that would suggest that like, like I've read like, like blind items and like seeing enough people who talk about this, who like really closely follow it. And who are like, well, she's, t- she's in like whatever country right now trying to get like up a level. So like, yeah, she says, so she seems like a casual Scientologist, but she's like, there's evidence out there that she's not, climbing, not climbing the levels active. and getting what like that, what, what do they do? They're, they're like they're getting, going clear, right? They're get, like, they're getting like dianetic. To- yeah. <laughs> well, they're yeah. What is the thing? It's because it, they're getting their feetins red. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like it's like a thing where like you put your hand in a thing. I, I didn't oh yeah, the, they're this. getting yeah. their the, the cans right. The can but yeah. <laughs> before Tom Cruise entered the world of Hollywood, he was considering becoming a priest. So I think that he, you know, to psychoanalyze someone I've never met is looking for a place to belong, found it in Scientology and found it with us in the movies. And when we rejected him, 
as a as a culture rejected him in like oh five oh six oh seven that's when he dove even deeper into scientology because it had to make up for the for for the love that we were no longer giving him sure it's how those groups operate right oh you need somewhere to belong you need somewhere to feel loved you need somewhere to be whatever to feel seen in this way that you're so desperate for uh only i can you know what we can do Mm -hmm. if you give us a lot of money Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is in theaters now if you want to watch Tom Cruise try to murder the internet. And I think we can all agree the internet had it coming. <laughs> Take that, internet. Fuck you, internet. <laughs> you must be a writer. Yeah. Nico, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. You have to come back. I will, yes. for sure. I'll come talk about Amy Mann. Oh, come talk about Amy Mann. Do you know that on Dead Eyes, Amy Mann does the doesn't a song every episode oh yeah and i mean like she was in one of the early i mean i've watched i've listened to that podcast series twice all the way through i'm a I th- oh oh you have i think okay, it's good. so good and it it's is like beautiful. i tell people about it all the time i pitched a podcast that didn't end up going through last year and it was one of the shows i used as a point of reference was like i want to do a thing that. like dead eyes he's he's such that so show is incredible i love it so much. but i hear that you're writing books i'm writing two books yeah. right now Tell us, Tell us about, about them. <laughs> so one is for sure, like is a bo- is a book I have signed a contract for. Uh, it is I'm writing a book for the American Music Series at the University of Texas Press, and it is called "The Dad Rock That Made Me a Woman." It's a series of essays about my experience growing up in the Yukon, and I worked in construction for a long time, so it's this sort of journey through my own journey to come. I'm a trans woman, so it's sort of my bit of memoir of of me being in a very hyper-masculine environment and eventually coming out. And it's also a dissection and a deep look at dad rock. What is dad rock? And within the book, I am making the case that dad rock is a genre and not a gender. Uh, and I make multiple cases for dad rock, some of the best dad rock musicians being women. I love that. That book sounds truly fascinating. It opens with the Wil- with Wilco and it ends with the National. <laughs> it is, you got it. It is bookended That's by awesome. That's so good. And the other book, or we're not talking about the other book? I'm writing a novel that is sort of a queer and trans coming-of-age love story that um, centers around the Vans Warped Tour in 2002. Um, that event- is the year I went. Uh, that's the year I, w- I went to one in Calgary. Ah, uh, I in- also went. Asbury Park. <laughs> one of the defining moments for the one I saw was Weird not story. just AFI was there and seeing Davey Havoc, but also at the end of the night, um, Pennywise was supposed to be the last band of the night. And the singer from Pennywise was sh- late and he showed up late and he walked on stage and he sang a song and then he seemed kind of disgruntled and then he sang another song and he, and he says, I don't really want to do this. Does anyone else want to sing? And everybody else <laughs> kind of laughs. The band kind of laughs and he's like, no, I'm serious. I don't want to do this. And he walks off stage and no one knows what to do for a second. And then Davey Havoc sort of walks out on stage very sheepishly Fuck yeah. and grabs the microphone and looks at the band and then they just played Misfits songs for half an hour. Um, uh, I, I, almost got, I think I almost drowned in the crowd when Newfound Glory started playing. Oh, oh yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was at the Camden, New Jersey one and oh, yeah. um, Camden. me first in the Gimme Gimme's and AFI switched clothing and so the Gimme's performed in drag and AFI performed in like Hawaiian shirts. That's incredible. It was to, very good. To see DV Havoc in a Hawaiian in shirt like a feels bowling like a once in a yeah. lifetime opportunity. Um, so yeah, I'm writing that book and it's called Girls of Summer is the speculative title and I'm, I'm writing that oh, right now and then that's awesome. well, we're going to yeah. pitch it around as soon as I'm done. Where can people find you on the internet if Tom Cruise doesn't destroy it? 
Um, yeah, in Tom Cruise's internet, uh, it depends on if he wins. I mean, part one of two, right? So we have another. We have a second part for him to kill yeah, the internet next year. I am at Nico Stratus on all social media platforms, including Blue Sky and Threads and whatever gets invented by the time this comes out. And NicoStratus.com is my website, and I write a newsletter where I do most of my work right now because I'm writing two books. Uh, in my newsletter, you can find it AnxietyShark.ca. CA stands for Canada. Rachel, where can people find you on Tom Cruise's internet? Oh, uh, well, they can find me at Rachel Broads on, like, to reiterate what Nico said, Threads, Blue Sky, I guess Twitter, although I haven't been able to upload Twitter. So, like, my phone broke. I got it fixed. It erased everything. I have not been able to log back into Twitter on my phone. How's that been? Since then. You're free. Good, You're nice. finally free. I am yeah. though. I'm I'm actually trying to embrace it. So I'm Rachel Broads in most places, Rebroads on Instagram, and I'm very SEO friendly, like I always say. So all you have to do is just write in Rachel Brodsky and I'll just pop up. Very Googleable. And I'm at Rambo Calrissian everywhere except for on TikTok where I'm Rambo underscore Calrissian. And you can find the show everywhere at the InSync Pod. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with a new movie and a new TV. I don't know what we're doing yet. I, I'm really just building the bridge as I'm crossing it here. But thanks for listening. Tune in again next week. And until next time, this message will self-destruct after five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel Brodsky. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.